just don't think we have enough harp in the world. I mean, seriously. How are you this morning? Hey, will y'all join me in thanking our band for doing such a great job this morning? Wow. Unbelievable. Hey, and you know, we don't talk about it a lot in this service, but it's important that you know we actually are one church in two locations. So right now, Lake Hills Church downtown is gathering in Brazos Hall. Let's give it up for what God's doing downtown. We get to be a part of that. They get to be a part of this. It's pretty cool. So it is great, great to be back on the saddle with you this morning. I want to take just a quick second and say a special, special word of thanks to Pastor Galen Clark from Greater Mount Zion Baptist Church, who preached in my absence while over the summer. He did a great job. And if you weren't here, you need to go back and watch his sermon online because it is strong, unbelievable. And then, of course, last week, our very own Pastor Terry Cadwell shucking the corn. Thank you, Terry, so, so much. It is great, great to know that you are in great hands when I'm gone. And I also, it's important that you know this too. Thank you for being the kind of church that you are that not only tolerates and allows, but encourages our family to get away and unplug, recharge, and kind of reconnect over the summer. We've had a great summer. We have one more little trip coming. We are going to be taking our firstborn to college Uh I know. Y'all can pray for Julie. She is very emotional right now. I'm just kidding. I, I'm a pup. It's terrible. How many of y'all have taken a kid to college before? It, it, listen, let me, let me say this. this. This has nothing to do with the sermon, but I'm just going to tell you this. It is great. It's, we're, we're in a great place with Emily. She's in a great place. Part of the reason that it's so hard is we don't want her to leave. I know sometimes people are like, please go now. That's, that's not our situation. It's awesome. It's right. It's the right time of her life, and it's the time for her to go do this. And it's terrible. It is awful as a dad. I mean, awful. So anyway, that's just my little moment of transparency there. And uh, we've got that coming up in a few weeks. But we thank you for encouraging us as a family the way that you do. I don't know if you're aware of the fact that this month marks the 50th anniversary of Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech. It was 50 years ago on August the 28th that he uttered those now iconic Words And that phrase not only entered the lexicon of our national history and consciousness, but I think it really goes a lot deeper than that. You know, as iconic as that speech has become over the years, it's interesting that it only lasted 17 minutes. Isn't that funny? Only 17 minutes. I mean, today's sermon is going to last five times that long, but that one only lasted... <laughs> I'm just kidding. I do that only for our first-time guests. I, I just like to see a little... What? Lubies will be closed by then. We're not going to be here that long. I'm just teasing. But it was only 17 minutes long. Uh, there were 200,000 people on the Washington Mall as Dr. King spoke from the Lincoln Memorial. Millions more watching on television. And what has become known as the I Have a Dream speech, it may surprise you to know, I Have a Dream as a phrase was never even in the original draft of that speech. As a matter of fact, one of the speech's co-writers later said that the speech deviated drastically from what he presented to Dr. King as kind of a beginning point. And he said there that day on the Washington Mall in front of all of those people, microphones and cameras, Martin winged it. Isn't that fascinating? But you know, I think 
when you look back on the I have a dream speech, there, there's a lot more at play than just the historical context. I, I think there's really something going on really deep, deep down beneath the veneer and beneath the surface. I, I think when Dr. King uttered those words, I have a dream, I think that resonates deep in the soul of everyone because I think we're all born dreamers. I want you to look at the person sitting next to you with passion and enthusiasm. Tell them, you're a dreamer. Now, that means a lot of different things to a lot of different people, but I, I really believe this. I really believe just observationally and experientially, we could all attest and affirm that reality. Think about little girls, as soon as they can imagine non-reality and things that haven't even happened yet, they begin dreaming about their, I don't know, their wedding to Prince Charming or world domination or whatever it is that little girls dream about. Guys, how many of us have shot baskets by ourselves on the driveway or in an empty gymnasium and we've, we've done it along to this soundtrack. We kind of dribble casually and then we start imagining the world championship. We start imagining players and teammates and opposition and then a pretend player comes to set a pretend pick and we pick up the pace of the dribble and we go three, two, one. He scores! He scores! You know what? That's the laugh of recognition. Every single guy in here has done that. Probably recently. Man, that's just, it's just part of us to dream. And yet, the reality is a lot of times we forget how to dream. And I think even more tragically, if we're not careful, we can forget that we're supposed to dream. As you read the pages of Scripture, you see God using dreams over and over and over again to reveal his plans and his purposes, but also to accomplish his purposes. Go all the way back to Genesis at the very beginning. We have the man Jacob who dreamed of a stairway to heaven long before Robert Plant and Led Zeppelin ever put that <laughs> phrase to music. You, you have in the Psalms, the psalmist writing that when God restored the fortunes of Israel and brought her back from captivity, there was laughter on their tongues and they, they were like men who dreamed. The prophet Jeremiah says in chapter 29, God knows the plans that he has for us, plans to prosper us, not to harm us, but to give us a future and a hope. Hope is another word for dream. Go all the way to the end of the Bible and you have the book of Revelation, which was a God-given dream to the apostle John as he lived in exile on the island of Patmos. And he says, this is what I want you to write down. This is what the end times will be like. Dreaming is a part of how God wired us up, which is why as a church family today, we are starting this series, Living the Dream. The power and the pitfalls of a God-sized life. And to do that, we're going to get into the life of a guy by the name of Joseph. He's a biblical character. And when I say Joseph, I'm not talking in this particular moment about New Testament carpenter Joseph. I'm talking about Old Testament, the son of Jacob, Joseph, who was one of the greatest dreamers the world has ever known. But before we get into the life of Joseph this morning, I want to just ask you to kind of take a moment and take stock of your DQ. I'm not talking about your Dairy Queen, although that's a God gift as well. I'm talking about your dream quotient. I'm talking about the capacity that you personally have right now 
to dream God dreams. And it's important to remember that there's a critical distinction between a God dream and a me dream. See, a me dream is the stuff that I can cook up on my own. A me dream advances my agenda, my wants, my needs, and my desires. But a God dream, a God dream advances God's agenda, God's wants, needs, desires, and purposes. And when you remember the fact that God is love, you can always know that God dreams in your life. God dreams through your life will always include you, but they ain't about you. It's an amazing paradox, the way God operates this, that when we dream God dreams, we find our greatest fulfillment, the greatest satisfaction that we can ever know. And yet it transcends, it eclipses our own personal agendas, pleasures, wants, needs, and desires. Now, Joseph is a fascinating character. The Bible opens up Joseph's story in Genesis chapter 37. And in the first four verses of Genesis 37, we find out a lot about Joseph. We find out that he is the son of Jacob. And we know from elsewhere that Jacob had 12 sons and one daughter. But in the first four verses, we find out that Joseph is the apple of his daddy's eye. We find out that Joseph is Jacob's favorite son. I wonder how many of you were the firstborn grandchild in your family of origin. You, you were the oldest child born to your grandparents. Can I see a show of hands? Okay, y'all know what this is like. You know it because the firstborn grandchild, can we just admit, is special. I mean, to the grandparents, okay? I'm not saying the parents love that child more or that God loves that child more or that the grandparents love that child more, but let's just admit it. The firstborn grandchild is special. I remember when Emily was born and Julie's parents came into the room after she had been, you know, cleaned up and Apgard and all that kind of stuff. And Julie's dad walked over to the, to the crib where, or to Julie where she was holding Emily and, and he looked down at her and he goes, look at those eyes. She is smart. She has taken all this in. Now she was two hours old at this point. Okay. <laughs> and I believe to this day that Julie's dad was actually testifying to his granddaughter's genetic prowess more than anything else. So he's really talking about himself. But in that moment, he was like, she's, she's different. She's different. Now, that's great for grandparents. That, that's, that's a good thing for grandparents to treat kids like that. But how many of us know that when parents treat kids like that, uh-oh, somebody give me an uh-oh. I mean, that's a bad deal. And you, yeah, <laughs> I'm telling you, it doesn't work. And it's funny to me that Jacob is one of the primary pillars of God's purposes throughout the Bible. When, when you hear about the patriarchs, the Bible refers to the God of Moses, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It, it was Jacob who was actually later named Israel. So, so Jacob was a big deal. But Jacob's household was a hot mess. Largely because of the choices he had made. Jacob, we also know, had multiple wives. Just say, that's dumb. That's dumb. I don't care who you are. That's a bad idea. Multiple wives. People say, well, well the, Bible, the Bible says that polygamy is a good idea. No, it doesn't. Just because the Bible tells the story doesn't mean that it's endorsing it. Every time you see polygamy in the Bible, it's the same thing you see in the world. Bad, hot mess. It was ugly. Jacob's home was a complete mess. 
We find out also that Jacob's other sons hated Joseph. They hated him. Not surprisingly, daddy showed this favoritism and Joseph was spoiled rotten. Spoiled rotten. The Bible tells us that that Joseph wore around this coat that Jacob had actually made for him that was very ornate. It's, It's referred to as the coat of many colors. We don't know exactly what it looks like, but we do know that Jacob assembled this thing. He He wove it together with his own hands to let everybody know that Joseph was special. He's special. You know, one of the worst things you can tell your kids is they're special. And I'm sorry, you're like, what? No, I'm serious. Of course they're special. They're created in the image of God. They are born unique and we love them. And yet we need them to function in our homes and in society not believing they're entitled to special treatment. Joseph thought he was entitled to special treatment. And in verse 5, we find Joseph as a 17-year-old guy just pouring gasoline on this fire of dysfunction, mess, and family ugly. Check this out in verse 5. This is how the Bible tells it. Joseph had a dream. And when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. He said to them, listen to this dream I had. We were binding sheaves of grain out in the field when suddenly my sheaf rose and stood upright while your sheaves gathered around mine and bowed down to it. Okay, wait, time out real quick. Let's take that down for just a second. How many of you have brothers or sisters? Can you imagine telling your brothers and sisters that? I've got two baby brothers who are now in their 40s. They're great guys. But if I, and they're twins, by the way, two and a half years younger than me. If I had told them that when we were 17 and 15, they would have jumped me and beaten me into the middle of next week. My stack of grain stood up and yours bowed down to it. And now for the second time, In the biblical, God-inspired record of Joseph's Joseph's life, we see the phrase, they hated him all the more. They hated him all the more. It's not surprising, is it? Verse 8, his brother said to him, do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? They hated him all the more because of his dream and what he had said. Verse 9, then... He had another dream and he told, aren't you kind of reading this going, Joseph, don't do this. Please don't do this. And he told it to his brothers. Listen, I had another dream. And this time the sun and the moon and 11 stars were bowing down to me. Isn't that neato? When he told his father, as well as his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, What is this dream you had? Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow down to the ground before you? His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the matter in mind. His brothers were jealous of him, but dad kept the matter in mind. Now, As I said just a second ago, there's a critical distinction between a God dream and a me dream. And I want to just make sure as we begin this series together that we understand that we're talking throughout the series about God dreams. 
I'm not talking about me dreams. I'm talking about the visions, the dreams, the hopes, and the plans that God can lay on your life, that he can literally impart to you. Now, for some people, that's kind of a, that's kind of a freaky thought. You go, man, don't be getting weird on me, preacher. This is my first time in church in a long time, and you're going to tell me God's going to speak to me? Listen, yes, I am exactly what I'm telling you. You may not hear an audible voice. If you do, I want to know about it. I've never heard it. But I've been given dreams. God has given me visions of what can be. Visions for our family, for my marriage. Visions for this church. Visions for life. Visions for what has will come to be. That's how God operates. But he does it in process. And let me just tell you five things. If you've got your program, I want you to write these things down because it's critical that you remember these things about God dreams. Number one, God dreams are bigger than anything you can dream. They're bigger than anything you can dream. Ephesians chapter three says, now to him who is in Christ Jesus, be all glory and honor to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine. Immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine. So you know what that tells me? That tells me in relationship with Christ, let it fly. Let your dreams fly. Let, let your dreams be governed by the Holy Spirit of God and dream the biggest dream you can dream. And then watch what God does with it. Because let me tell you what God will do. If you take your dreams to God, if you receive your dreams from God, I believe with everything that I have, God will look in on your life and in your prayer, your relationship with God, you present these dreams and say, God, is this from you? Is this what you want? I'll go after it tooth and nail, no matter what. I think God would look at the grandest, greatest, most out there dream you and I could ever dream. And he would go, that is so cute. That is such a sweet dream that you just cooked up, Mac. That's awesome. And then he would pull the curtain back and say, let me show you what I've got in store for you. Let me show you what is possible in me. God dreams are bigger than you can dream. Number two, God dreams are better than you can dream. It's not just about quantity. It's not just about the volume of the dream, but it's also about the quality of the dream. God dreams better dreams than you and I dream. I remember when I was in college and I had not yet started dating Julie. We, we had known each other for four or five years and I had dated a few other people and, and gone out on a lot of other dates, but just it never had really, really clicked. And, and I remember at the time praying about my dating life. How many of you have ever prayed about your dating life? Can I just, that's a good idea, especially if you're single. If you're married, you don't have to pray about it too much. But if you're single, you should pray about your dating life. And, and I felt very, very strongly that God had not called me to singleness. I, I didn't have any indication that he had given me the gift of celibacy. So I really believed that, that marriage was in my future. That was funny. Some of y'all ought to think about that for a second. I, I, I knew, and so I was praying that God would make me the man he wanted me to be for the woman he wanted me to have 
and that I certainly wanted to have. I had no idea. I had no fat clue how God was going to answer that prayer in Julie Sanderson. In Julie, whom I already knew. We we met. We'd been friends for four or five years. I had no clue. And yet God was in the process of bringing that God dream into reality and into fruition in my life. And can I just tell you that after 22 years of wedded bliss and two children and being a part of starting a church, God's dream is better than anything I could have cooked up on my own. Julie's out of town this weekend, but when you see her, tell her I said that, please. (laughs) Number three, God dreams are tailored. They are specifically tailored for your life. Just like Jacob tailored that coat of many colors for Joseph, God dreams are tailored for your life. Based on your experiences, based on your personality, your temperament, your gifts and talents, God dreams are tailored for you. They are. They're tailored. Number four, God dreams are collaborative. God always invites us to collaborate in his dreams for our lives, to collaborate with him, to participate with him. Remember, God dreams advance God's agenda. So we we know that a God dream is always moving his purposes forward, but also to collaborate with other people, to, to connect with other people and to collaborate with them. I love it when Christians say, well, you know, I don't, I don't really, I'm not part of any church in particular. I go around, man. I just let the Spirit lead me, dude. That's just, I just, man, it's just, okay, dude. Can I tell you something? You're missing part of God's dream for your life. Now, I'm talking to Christians here. I'm not talking to people who are kicking the tires or not yet in a relationship with Christ, but Christians who don't really and truly connect into a particular church are missing part of God's dream for their lives. Because they don't have that collaboration. They don't have that connectivity. They don't have that community, that accountability with people that God wants you to collaborate with. It just it doesn't happen. They're like, well, man, that, that's kind of legalistic. No, it's not. It's just common sense. Don't be dumb. You, you can't collaborate when you're hopscotching and hydroplaning spiritually through life with a bunch of different people. Can't do it. What if I told Julie, Julie, I want to marry you. Let's get married and build a life together. I'm going to keep dating other people, but, but I'm going to marry you, but I'm going to keep dating. Can't, it's a bandwidth problem. I don't have the bandwidth to be married to Julie, but to date other people. I don't, I don't have the strength to fight off the attack on my life that she would give me if I tried to do, but it's a bandwidth problem. You cannot collaborate and hydroplane. You can't do it. So collaboration is a part of a God dream. And then the last thing, God dreams are always phased. They're always phased over time. One leap of faith gives birth to another leap of faith. One act of God, one response to the calling of God always calls us to the next calling of God. And a lot of times we can't see the next one until we take the first one. So God dreams are phased. But go back to my man, Joseph, for just a second. 
in the life of Joseph, we find three things that are so important to where you and I live in the real world day in and day out. And it's important when we talk about dreams that we make sure we're not, we make sure, make sure, tell your neighbor, make sure, make sure that you understand we're not talking about fantasy island. Okay. We're not talking about removal from the real world to go out into the ether and just to think nice thoughts, just sweet dreams. <sighs> the plane. It's not Fantasy Island. That's a cultural joke that only about 20% of our audience is even going to know what I'm talking about. If you're under the age of 40, this afternoon I want you to go to YouTube and just, just Google Fantasy Island. All right? So just a little aside, a little cultural reference point for you young folks. But that's not how God operates. God operates in reality, in taking dreams and making them real. And so in the time that we've got left, I just want to talk about dreaming in 3D, just, just 3D dreams, because that's what Joseph experienced. It's what Joseph did. The first thing you've got to know is that dreams, God dreams, demand discernment. Dreams demand discernment. How many of you know that a dream is a fragile thing? It's, it's, a fra it's a powerful thing, but man, it's fragile. You've got to be discerning about who to share it with. Joseph is 17 years old. Yes, God has given this, his, this dream, these dreams. And just for the record, I don't want to steal too much of our thunder over the next few weeks, but just know that God was in those dreams that he shared with his brothers. God was in the process already of making those dreams reality. But it wasn't going to happen the way that Joseph thought it was going to happen or that his brothers thought it was going to happen. But dreams demand discernment. Discern who to share a dream with. Don't go share a dream with people who don't love God more than they love you and don't love you the way God loves you. Because they don't have the spiritual capacity. Many times they don't have the emotional capacity to celebrate and help you protect that dream. They're going to look at you like you have two heads. You're going to be like, you think what? Wait a minute. Are you telling me as a parent that you think your kids will grow up and never have sex until they get married? That's nuts. I'm telling you, I think my kids absolutely can grow up and not have sex until they get married. That's a dream I have for their lives. That's a God dream that I have for their lives. What? That's not natural. Of course, I just think our kids are capable of more than dogs. And I think they can choose. Now, I think we've got to paint a vision for them. Why choose? Why would you protect and guard this gift of sex for marriage? Because it's so awesome. Because it's so God-given. But yeah, I believe that. You're like, of course you do, preacher. No, it has nothing to do with what I get to do for a living. It's because of what God says biblically. You've got to have discernment about when to share a God dream. 
Be discerning about when you roll it out. God began 18, 20 years ago to lay on Julie's and my heart the idea of being a part of starting a church in Austin, Texas. 20 years ago. It didn't happen until 16 years ago. So we, we took time to nurture, to incubate, to cultivate the dream that God was laying on our hearts. To discern, is this from God or is this a me dream? You've got to be discerning about why to share the dream. Be discerning about why you share the dream. I don't think Joseph was very discerning about why he shared these dreams with his brothers. I don't think there was one part of Joseph that wanted to share this dream with his brothers so that they could discover God's wonderful plan for their lives. I think Joseph wanted to share this dream with his brothers so that they would recognize him as the man. I think Joseph felt threatened by their resentment, by their hate. And so in an effort to put himself up and to make himself look better, he said, let me tell you what I dreamed. And that disclosure with no discernment generated so much resentment, so much hate that his brothers decided they wanted to kill him. They wanted to kill him. And so they decided to do exactly that. Now, before they got the opportunity, there's one more D that I think you need to remember about dreams. And it's in that little phrase from when Jacob jumped Joseph for his dreams. Remember, it says there that Jacob rebuked Joseph. His brothers hated him all the more. But Jacob kept the matter in mind. Dreams deserve deliberation. Dreams deserve deliberation. To really and truly consider the evidence the hand of God, the circumstances. Is this a God dream? You got to deliver it. You got to think about it. Use your common sense. The first thing you pray for is wisdom. Wisdom, wisdom. The Bible says in James, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask. And God, who so freely gives every good and perfect gift, will give you wisdom. Tell your neighbor right now with passion and enthusiasm, get you some. Get you some wisdom. Common sense is so uncommon. Isn't that true? Just common sense. But it's discernment. And then there's deliberation to really and truly consider. Jacob kind of filed these dreams away in the back of his mind. And while Jacob was filing these things away, Joseph's brothers were plotting to kill him. Genesis 37 goes on to say that one day Jacob told Joseph, go to your brothers who are out in the field tending the flocks and take them some lunch and just go check on them. And as, jo as, Jacob, as Joseph was approaching his brothers, they looked up and saw him coming down the road. And it was there that they decided to kill him. And they said amongst themselves, let's see what becomes of his dreams now. Come here, dreamer boy. And they took him and they stripped him of the cloak that his father had given him to prove how special he was. And they threw him in an empty cistern. They threw him in a pit that he couldn't get out of.
And it was there in that pit without the coat of many colors, without his father's favoritism, that Joseph had to have believed that the dream had died. He had to believe that. I mean, there was nothing in that situation, there was nothing in that circumstance that cried out, live in the dream, great days. And here's what happens. After his brothers threw him in the cistern and were getting ready to kill him, I love that the Bible says this, they sat down to eat their meal. And that's just funny. Tell you what, let's kill him. But I'm hungry right now. Let's do that in a minute. And while they were eating their meal, they looked up and they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. Their camels were loaded with spices, balm, and myrrh. And they were on their way to take them down to Egypt. And Judah, the oldest, said to his brothers, What will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? It's it's total self-interest here. Judah's not being a good guy. He just goes, listen, I mean, this is going to be bad. We're going to have to cover this up and then cover up the cover-up, the lie that covers the lie. Tell you what, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him. After all, he is our brother. That's funny. I thought that was funny. He is our brother. Let's just sell him into slavery. His brothers agreed. So when the Midianite merchants came by, his brothers pulled Joseph up out of the cistern and sold him for 20 shekels of silver to the Ishmaelites who took him to Egypt. Living the dream. How many of y'all play golf? Can I just see a show of hands? That's cool. I I don't play golf. It hurts my faith and it damages my witness for the Lord. But I I don't. But I do know this. When you address the ball, okay, you address and you give it that little waggle, you have to, you have to kind of bring it up. you got to have a backswing, right? I know you're thinking right now, you don't play? It looks so fluid. But if you, if you address the ball and, and try to hit it from here, not much is going to happen. You have to have a backswing. And it's in the backswing that you generate power. It's in the backswing that you begin to coil up like a spring made of twisted blue steel and unleash untold power on that little white ball and rocket it 40 yards down the fairway. When you're in the pit, when you're in the cistern, when you feel like your father's forgotten you, you're in your backswing. It's in the pit that you generate power. It's in the pit that you develop dependency. Dependency. And I have to be completely candid with you and tell you, I don't even like the word dependency. I don't like somebody to refer to my kids as dependents. I know they are for the IRS, but I'm just, I don't like it. We like independence. 
we're Americans. More than that, we're Texans. Come and take it. But make no mistake about it. We are utterly and completely dependent upon God Almighty. I'm dependent upon God for the breath that I'm drawing in right now. I'm dependent upon Him for life. I'm dependent upon God for God dreams that eclipse anything I could cook up on my own. And it was in the pit and in the caravan of slaves that Joseph began to discover and to develop his dependency on God. When all of the props, all of the favoritism, all of the cool clothes had been stripped away, it was in his dependency, in his backswing, that he developed the power that God needed him to have, that God had designed him to have. And it was that power that God used later on, not just to, to save himself, although that happened. He didn't save just himself. He didn't actually, he didn't even just save his family, although that ended up happening. And, and just for the record, later on, his brothers did bow down to him. I will get to that, but just that did happen. And it wasn't just that this power God used to save himself and his family and the nation of Israel that his family would become. It was this power that God used to save the entire world. Because it was through Joseph's power that God preserved Joseph. Joseph's family, Joseph's family who became Israel and out of Israel was born the savior of the world, Jesus, who, by the way, offers to save you, who, by the way, offered to save me. That is the God dream. That's what God was up to when he allowed Joseph to be thrown into that cistern, when he allowed Joseph to be sold as a slave for just 20 pieces of silver, when he allowed Joseph to leave hearth and home and go to Egypt. Egypt. They don't even worship God in Egypt. They worship a bunch of little g-gods. Check this out. Verse 36 of Genesis 37. Meanwhile, say meanwhile. meanwhile. Meanwhile, the Midianites sold Joseph. So he's been sold twice now. Sold Joseph in Egypt to Potiphar, one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard. The 
backswing. The backswing is critical to a God dream. I can't wait to see what God's going to do through this series in us as a church family, in you personally, in my life. But today, wherever you are, you need to know that God has a dream for your life. That God invites you into that dream through Jesus. Doesn't mean that you know about Jesus or that you go to church, but it means that you know him personally, that you've stepped into that relationship with him. I want to ask you if you would just for a moment bow your heads. And I want to ask you to really and truly consider whether or not you've done just that. Have you stepped into that relationship? Personally, definitively, no doubt about it. If you haven't, in just a moment, we want to give you the opportunity to do that. To begin that relationship. You see, a relationship with God is not only about going to heaven. That's a part of it, no doubt about it. But a relationship with God in Christ is about living the dream. Right here, right now, and forever. You may be here today and you're in a pit. You're in the backswing phase. You may be here and you're in the middle of living out a dream that God's laid on your heart. But if you want to step into a relationship with Christ for the first time, then I want to invite you just to pray right where you're sitting. Just talk to God. Silently. Just say, Something like this in your own words. Jesus, I need you. I give you my life once and for all. I believe you died on the cross for me. And I believe you rose again for me. I confess my sin to you. I claim your forgiveness. give you my life, all of it, from now on, dependent upon you. With every head bowed and every eye closed for just a brief moment, this is sacred ground that we're on right now. But if that was your prayer and you meant it for the first time in your life, I want to ask you just to raise your hand. If you will, just raise your hand and hold it up high for just a moment. Because this is the most important moment in your life. And it's a moment that needs to be marked. That's why we ask you to raise your hand. Because we want to help you mark that by just passing something down the road to you just right now. With your hands up there, there's something coming. It's just a little box to help you with what's next. Where do you go from this moment of beginning? And as a church family, we invite you to be a part of the family. To be baptized. To celebrate 
this new life in Christ, in the family of faith. And as a church, we celebrate what God has done in your life. We like to put our hands together and we tell you, welcome home. Welcome home.